Hello, I am Joel McLeod. And I'm Roland Tanner. Welcome to the 905. Third time's the term, as they say. We are welcoming back to the podcast for his third appearance at the microphone, Mike Moffat. We've been wanting to do this episode for some time now, but had trouble with scheduling. Alas, finally, the stars have aligned and we are able to make this happen. As no doubt you are aware, both the provincial and federal governments laid out their budgets for the year. Billions upon billions of dollars are tabled to be spent. So one would expect that the number one issue for not just 905ers, but all Canadians, would be a top priority to be addressed. I am of course talking about housing affordability. Consistently, the issue of housing prices and being able to make rent and mortgage payments have been pulled as top of mind for Canadians. In the age of inflation we are in, this is completely understandable. On the surface, the federal government is committed to spending approximately $4 billion on housing. And, well, the provincial government's plans are well known to Ontarians and they are controversial and confusing both at the same time. So clearly a path towards housing affordability is there, right? Well, not according to Mike Moffat. He has been critical of both the federal and provincial governments for piecing together ad hoc policies and plans which don't really seem to address the core problems that Canadians are worried about. So what does he think ought to be done? Well, we invited him on once again to give us his expertise and insight into this number one issue for Canadians. Mike is an economist with the Smart Prosperity Institute. His work centers on the housing market and housing affordability. And as I said, this is his third time on the podcast. We welcome his insight. Have a listen. Okay. Uh, thanks, Mike, for a uh, third time back. Third time's the charm uh, to the 905er podcast. Uh, we wanted to do this since actually the, the provincial and federal budgets were dropped. And it's, we've just been going back and forth to get the kind of scheduling sorted out, but we finally managed to nail down a date and time to do this. And so wanted to have you on to kind of discuss what is the most talked about, but not nothing done about it issue in Canadian politics at the moment. What was it? Let me, let's just start off with broad, broad strokes. What's your take on the, on the, the, both the provincial and federal budgets that were brought down back in March ish last month. And what it's, what do you think it's doing with the housing crisis that we're, we're, we're experiencing, not just in the 905, but across the country. Yeah. So, so first of all, thank you. Uh, thank you for having me on for the uh, third time. I really appreciate it. Uh, well, let's look at these individually. So the provincial government, the, you know, there wasn't much in there about housing though. It seems to be that the philosophy of the provincial government is that the issues around housing aren't so much a budgetary item or a budgetary issue, uh, but but rather they're they're more of a regulatory one. So we've had the the provincial government come out uh, with four housing supply plans uh, in the in the last four years, uh, three of them in the last uh, thirteen months or so. So you know there there's certainly change there. I don't think you know it's very incremental change. It's not particularly transformative, other than some of the more controversial areas like like the like the green belt and issues we can get into. The federal one is, I think, a little bit more strange that you can kind of see what the, what the provincial government's doing on housing. You can agree with it or don't agree with it, but you can see the direction they're moving in. The federal budget had almost nothing on on housing, uh, good, good, bad, or indifferent. And and when when pressed on this, and I was in the the budget lockup where where all the media and the stakeholders go, and and the the consensus of the, the sort of bureaucrats and, and politicians that, that we spoke to in the room was basically that the view of the government was that they're they're already made a number of announcements, you know, with the with the national housing strategy and things like that. And they they go and give some big number, like 80 some odd billion dollars that they say they they're investing in a certain certain period of time. So their position on that is basically that they're doing the, they're doing their part. It's just going to take time for this this money to roll out. I don't find that entirely convincing, and I haven't read a lot of media reports or op-eds, or I listen to a lot of housing podcasts. 
I don't find many people who are particularly convinced uh, by that argument, but that's at least the the position that the federal government is taking that uh, there is a lot of money in housing in previous budgets, and now they're they're in implementation mode. What I, I think most of our listeners are familiar with the the Ford government's housing strategy, uh, better or worse, positive or negative, however you may feel about it. Uh, but maybe enlighten our, our listeners a little bit more in terms of what how, like what what role could the federal government be playing on this file because our our understanding is pretty much like aside from just other than just directly building housing like federally subsidized housing and it, all the 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 planning rigmarole that would have to come in with that buying land and whatnot uh what else could the federal government be doing on this file to to help housing affordability yeah, so there's there's a few things. So we we can start by looking at what they're actually doing, and then we can kind of build on top of that. So they are doing a lot on the social housing side, or at least they're, they're spending a lot of money on the social housing side. And a lot of that isn't so much building directly, but but working with partners on the ground, provinces, municipalities, and so on, uh, to provide a lot of different models, whether it be social housing, co-op housing, and, and that sort of thing. Um, so there is a lot of movement there. I think. There, there's more to be done, but I think we also have to realize that uh, roughly speaking, about 94% of, of housing in Ontario is market housing, right? So they're doing a lot, but they're doing a lot in that sort of 6% window. On the other 94%, uh, they're doing a couple things. So first of all, there's a lot of demand, what I call demand side instruments, uh, so that could be there to increase or decrease demand. So you have the things like the uh, uh, savings plans for first-time home buyers and a lot of things to help people finance homes, which actually end up making these things worse because it just kind of throws more money in, into the pot. Uh, they're doing things to reduce what they call bad demand. So you know some of the foreign buyer uh, anti-speculation measures, that kind of thing. And then finally, I'd say the, the the third leg of the stool is uh, what they call the housing accelerator fund. So that's basically it's a it's a four billion dollar pot of money that municipalities can apply to um, through an application process to uh, basically identify the bottlenecks of building more housing and addressing them. So let's say you you had a municipality that. Um, was having trouble with uh, getting approvals through because they just didn't have the staff. Or they're doing things by fax machine and pen and paper. And I can tell you a lot of municipalities are doing that. So they can apply to the federal government and go, hey, could you give us like three or four billion dollars so we could digitize our systems, get things rolling faster? So that's in a nutshell what the federal government's doing. Uh, but what they could be doing is a whole lot more. Um and there's a variety of areas where they can identify a number of bottlenecks and, and address them. So, for instance, one of the big bottlenecks we have is having the labor to build housing, having the electricians and plumbers and roofers and that kind of thing. And one of the big areas we can get that to, through is uh, through immigration. We have specific immigration streams for the skilled trades. They tend to be tend to be underused. Um, we could you know, we can increase. Um, we could increase the, the the number of people who we're bringing in with skilled trades credentials. And that's not even necessarily increasing immigration overall. It's just changing the sort of categories we, we bring people in. So that's one thing we could do. Another thing we could do is reform the tax system. Back in the 1960s, up until about 1972, there were really uh, good uh, investment credits for building purpose-built rentals. And I don't, I'm a, I'm a biz professor. I don't want to get into the sort of accounting of it, but basically what it allowed uh, investors in new purpose-built rentals to do would be to depreciate uh, for tax purposes uh, the, the cost of building new homes, um, new, new purpose-built rentals, basically lowered their tax bills, made building these things more attractive, and it got a lot more of them built. And we saw after 1972, after those tax credits went away, that purpose-built rentals just collapsed. We built more in Ontario. We built more purpose-built rentals in the year 1972 than we did in the entire decade of the 1990s. Like, it's a massive, massive mm -hmm. difference. So we could bring those tools back. And the kind of irony is that... This budget, this federal budget in 2023, 
reintroduced a lot of those tools, but for building things like EV battery manufacturing plants and uh, and clean hydrogen and so on to say, okay, if you do these things, we'll give you a, we'll, if you do these socially beneficial things, we'll give you a tax credit. Those same types of policy instruments we could use to build affordable purpose-built rental at a much cheaper cost than government building it itself. So there are there are instruments out there. Those are just two examples, but there's a lot of things that the federal government uh, could be doing that they've, for whatever reason, chosen not to. And many of those things are things that they used to do back in the 60s and 70s, and they they stopped doing some time ago. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I was just sort of jump in on that. Like, if you know, if you rent in Ontario, chances are uh, that you live in something that was built before 1972, and often, you know, I live somewhere built in the 1920s right at the moment uh and that's that's where the rental housing stock is and it it seems such a an obvious uh an obvious thing it's like why did we stop building rental properties well because there was no money in it and um i mean the the, the problem with housing in canada at the moment is really an affordable housing problem not a housing it's not a, you know the the the, the the supply that is being provided, uh, certainly by the province, is is very much aimed at those those market purchases, which is going towards the wealthier sectors of society. And that affordable aspect, there's still no motivation whatsoever as that I can see, or very little motivation that I can see for developers to be to choose to to build affordably. Um, is that is that a fair understanding of what's going on? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so developers are are, are going to build what it, what gets them the best rate of return. You know, mm-hmm. that like, like the at least the, the for profit ones. And there are some good not not for profit uh, builders, but the but the majority of builders and developers are for profit builders and developers, and they're going to build whatever makes them the most money and whatever is legal to do so. But we can change that. Like that's not, you know, that something earn one thing earns sort of six percent rate of return, another thing eight percent. That doesn't come from the heavens, right? That's a function of the regulatory environment of you know what land is set aside for single detached versus apartments. It's it's set by the tax environment. It's set by the fees that the CMHC sets. So I'll give you an example about that. This is something that just happened last week. Uh, the CMHC has a couple programs for uh, for insurance, uh, for mortgage insurance for multi-unit residential. So if you are building a multi-unit residential, just the same way that uh, you and I might need to get mortgage insurance if we're buying a single detached home, if you're building an apartment block, you need mortgage insurance as well. And there's a program called MLI Select. And what that does is it gives you reduced mortgage insurance if the building you're built uh, either is affordable, um, is accessible to people with disabilities, or is like energy and climate efficient. The CMHC j- just recently significantly raised the fees on all three of those things. So despite the fact that the federal government and the CMHC says they they, they want more affordable rentals, they want, you know, they want more climate-friendly rentals. They want rentals that are uh, more accessible to persons with disability. They just raise the fees on all of those, and that that's a decision that they made for a variety of reasons around, you know, just making sure that this fund is solvent and a lot of financial things. But it pushes us in the wrong direction, and I think that's what we ultimately have to figure out is if we are going to build enough housing, and if that is mostly going to come from for-profit developers. How can we change the regulatory and tax system to get the outcomes that we want? We're also very familiar with Ontario uh, because we live here. Uh, you obviously know a lot more about, about how the other provinces do things. I mean, is this a Canada-wide problem uh, or are there actually sort of differences in the level of problems that the, 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 all the provinces are, are facing in terms of building um, affordable housing supply? So most of, most of the problems in, in Canada, at least up until I'd say about 18 months ago, were, were actually isolated to two geographies. It was lower mainland BC and, and southern Ontario. So it's not even an Ontario problem so much that you know northern Ontario is still relatively affordable, though could certainly be more so. 
Um, that's changed a little bit uh, recently that our lack of affordability is starting to to spread to other provinces. So now we're having big affordability issues in Atlantic Canada as a lot of Ontarians uh, move, moved there during the pandemic and liked it and told their friends and now they're all moving in. So we're now getting affordability issues in, in Halifax and Moncton and, and a bunch of places. But it, there is a big sort of regional pockets of both affordability and unaffordability. And what determines it is just is largely just the um, just the difference between how fast the population is growing versus how fast uh, the housing supply is growing. So you have provinces like, for instance, Saskatchewan isn't growing all that quickly. So they haven't had much of an affordability issue because it's been easier for them, and they're still building homes, but it's easier been easier for them to keep up. You've got other places like like Edmonton, which is which is still growing quite rapidly, but they've been particularly good about building new housing. Um, you know, and we can quibble. You know, some of that is is sprawl. I don't want to suggest that from an environmental point of view, it's all been perfect, but they've been doing uh, some interesting things on you know, both the social housing side, but also uh, making it easier to build market homes. So having uh, you know, they've really liberalized their parking minimum rules to allow, you know, because we if, if we're building homes near LRTs and subway lines, like, why do we need to have a pile of parking? We ran into this issue in Ottawa, where I am right now, that uh, there was a group wanting to build affordable, affordable homes. And it was essentially getting blocked by council because they didn't have enough uh, uh, have enough parking, despite the fact that these are affordable homes on an LRT line. Most of the residents weren't going to own a car. But they ran into these sort of red tape type issues. So Edmonton's been pretty good about that. So you have some places that have avoided uh, the housing issue, the housing crisis, because they're just not growing all that fast. And other places who have been a little bit better on the regulatory uh, or the social side than, than, than we've been here in southern Ontario. I mean, I mean, I guess there was a time in the past when when. Canada was kind of able to direct immigration uh, and say, OK, we don't want you all going to live in Ontario. And, and, and I think it was a Supreme Court decision, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, that we can't do that. People have a right to live wherever they want to live. But it's the whole, we, we tend to, I mean, certainly I've been guilty perhaps of blaming things like, you know, um, uh, the Ontario Land Tribunal, and, and with, which never seems to be addressed, but yeah. to my mind is the thing that creates the biggest delays in, in uh, planning approvals. I will put a huge emphasis on that, but maybe it's like, well, it's just simply because most people want to live in southern Ontario or, or, or southern coastal BC. Uh, is it as simple as that? Well, that's that, that that is that is part of it, though. Those trends are, are slowly changing, and it's kind of a, a glacial thing. But we we do um, we do see that changing a little bit, and partly that's due to policy. So we've moved; we're shifting more of our immigration over to like provincial nominee programs and and, and things like that. Now, there's an issue of okay, if I'm a provincial nominee and uh, I, I uh, newcomer to Canada and I go to Charlottetown PEI, am I going to stay there or am I eventually going to, to move to to Ontario? So, um, you know, the, those those things, you know, we are seeing uh, at least the the, the, the the initial destination changing a little bit, but, you know, that can kind of sort it out on the, uh, on the sort of final destination. Uh, but we all are also seeing within Ontario a shift uh, in, in in the geography of of where people are settling. That it used to be something close to close to three quarters. About seventy percent of all immigrants to Ontario didn't just settle in southern Ontario. They settled in two places. Um, they settled in Peel Region and the city of Toronto, or three regions of three places. If you want to get hyper specific, Toronto, Mississauga, and Brampton. Um, that's that proportion is going down. It's still something like sixty-two percent, or I, I don't know the don't have the exact figures, but you know, it changes by about half a percent a year, and that's partly that that's partly due to things like like housing prices and things like that, more opportunities, other places. But also, one of the big things that's changing is uh, the way that newcomers come to the country. That it used to be that they would come over at twenty-eight or twenty-nine, and already um already had a job lined up and already had their education now they're often coming at 17 or 18 because the, their landing spot is a college or university and they're going to school here 
uh, staying up to three years under the postgraduate work permit program and then applying for permanent residency, which I think if we can if we can deal with the hiccups, I think is a much better way of doing things because you avoid issues like worrying about foreign credentials. You give people an, an extra decade to figure out all the sort of soft skills you need at an employer. Um, so I think that's mostly a good thing that we haven't managed it particularly well. But it also changes the geography of where people settle, right? That they're not all settling necessarily in Toronto and Peel because if they're coming through our colleges and universities, they end up settling in a lot of college and university towns. So now you're having a, a higher proportion of newcomers come to a Kitchener-Waterloo, a Kingston, a London, a Windsor, or so on. So they're now, instead of going to just places with NHL teams, they're moving <laughs> to places with OHL teams as well. So we we do have these kind of shifts. Well, well Mike, we got we got to hook them young. So, <laughs> well, yeah, that's just that that's just it. Yeah, and, you know, we got we got to sell all those Knights and Sarnia Sting and uh, Windsor yeah, Greyhounds yeah. uh, uh, tickets. So, and again, I think that I think that's mostly a, a positive thing. It's just that um, we haven't managed it particularly well. And I heard um, Sean Fraser, our immigration minister federally, talk about this, that there's a big difference between our immigration programs, which work with a target and a cap, and our college and university international enrollments, where those decisions are outsourced to the colleges and universities themselves. The federal government doesn't say, okay, we're going to bring in 300,000 international students this year. That Fanshawe and Western and Laurier and Conestoga and all of your colleges and universities all across the province, they make those decisions individually and whatever the number adds up to, it adds up to. So it's a little bit less of a controlled system. And I think we're, we're seeing um, some of the side effects that that can cause on uh, not just housing, but but transportation in other areas as well. Um. Try just taking kind of a step back and giving that like 50,000 foot view of the problem. So just to summarize for our listeners. So we have a case of a lot of international students coming into the province, uh, staying for 10 years, post, you know, including after their studies are completed. Um, on top of that, we have the rest of us who are all looking for a place to live, a place to work and whatnot, but we're not, we have not built the housing to, uh, meet that increase of immigration and in, in new new uh, new Canadians to fill it. So that's been the problem. That's why our housing is so expensive in a nutshell. Uh, but I'm trying. So, like at the federal and provincial level, there's there's a push to okay, we're going to solve this. Especially at the provincial, Doug Ford came in. He's like, I'm going to we're going to build, build, build. And it, my understanding is he hasn't so far. But yeah. that. The solution has just kind of been, it's a, it's a typical conservative mindset. I'm not saying that is a, is a bad thing, but this is just, the idea was like, okay, government is in the way, yeah. bureaucracy is in the way, cities are in the way, we're going to remove that. So you had like Bill 23 where like the, the, the development fees were removed. Now it's supposed to free up all this capital, all the costs of, of building. It was going to unleash the power of all the developers to go in and build what we need over the next 10 years. And in my mind, there's something that Roland and I have talked about a couple times in this podcast, and you as an economist, I thought I'd run it by you. I don't think it's in a developer's best interest to build the necessary uh, volume that we need in the, in the demand in the supply market. Because, I mean, if we build one and a half million homes in 10 years, doesn't that bring down the price tag that they can sell a home back to us for? I mean, if it's just if there's just that much inventory now in the market. Simple supply and demand says, well, I'm not going to spend one $1.5 million for a townhouse anymore. Like, so are we, are we approaching this from the wrong point of view? It's like that's wrong philosophy to, to fix a problem of letting the market sort it out. Well, I, I, I certainly think we need to do more on, on the social side. So you'll get no argument from me that, um, again, about 6% of our housing is on, is on the social side. Uh, back in the 1970s, our new build tended to be anywhere from about eight to 14 percent. So I certainly think there's there's room to to increase that uh, increase that somewhat. But I I would suggest that you know builders builders are going to build if if they can earn the rate of return right and um, that yeah if, if prices get pushed down 
maybe they only sell for 1.2 instead of 1.5 but but if they're earning the rate of return that's better than getting zero mm-hmm. right so uh so i do think there you know there is uh the, you know we we can have the the short profit motive there i think the bigger challenge is that it's it's not profitable at any price um that they're just the rate of return isn't there because you either you you um you're still swamped in development charges because only some development charges have been waived, uh, lack of land availability, lack of labor, uh, and so on. And, and the tax system is just crushing, particularly, ironically enough, crushing on all the things that we claim that we want, uh, which is, you know, which is affordability and density and those kinds of things. Um, you know, the single, the single cheapest thing to build uh, uh, from a tax point of view is McMansions. Really? That's that's where you pay the lowest tax per sort of dollar that you get. So <laughs> that floors me. Yeah. yeah. So so it, it's almost like having a negative carbon tax. Like the more mm-hmm. gas you you burn, you you sort of get get money. It's you know, we look at development charges when we look at um and even after you're you're built, you look at things like like property tax. The mill rate on multi-unit residential uh per dollar is higher than on single detached um you know the the development chart like the development charges are supposed to pay for infrastructure a lot of times when you're building it uh a lot of infill there's not a lot of marginal infrastructure you need to build but you're still paying these sort of massive dc charges which again the the ford government has tried to uh tried to waive so i do think you know i i do think there it is a real concern going okay you know at, at what price point do builders just say okay we can't we can't do that um, but I, I think that's that has more to do with what the the regulatory environment looks like ra- rel- rather than okay, what what did stuff sell for three years ago? Because I don't think that's that's all that relevant because unless these developers have a time machine, they're, they're they're not able to go prices look at prices now. It's just a matter of okay, what does what does stuff pencil for today? Uh, and in light of all all that, kind of bring it back to our original topic of the the budgets brought forward. It's repeatedly pulling at a top concern for Canadians, not just in the 905, not just in Ontario, but across the country, that housing prices and housing affordability is a number one concern, especially with inflation and whatnot happening at the moment. Um, and I, my question is, is here in Ontario, like we've seen the federal and the provincial government come together to, for example, the VW plant in St. Thomas, that was a big joint effort. They're both shaking each other's hands and tipping their hats to each other on job well done there. Yet we're not seeing that that effort and that collaboration on what is the number one issue for the majority of Canadians and Ontarians right now. Can, can you maybe just shed some light on like what what is what is going on here that this well, is the number one issue no, and nobody wants to say, let's solve it for Canadians. Yeah, and I, I'm a little bit surprised by that myself. That you know, if I had a, if I look at the biggest issues in housing, and again, you sort of mentioned fifty thousand foot problem. Like, yeah, it's labor, it's tax, and all these things. I think the biggest issue that we have is just a lack of coordination, and it's a classic Canadian problem where no one level of government owns this. The federal government has policy levers. Provincial government has policy levers, municipal governments. And then, you know, in Ontario, we have to be complex. We have upper tier, lower tier. So it's really sort of four levels of government. Plus the higher education sector, which plays a huge role, both in the international student side and also, you know, educating all the skilled trades people and the planners and things like that we need. We have the building sector. uh, We have nonprofits and so on. Nobody brings all of them together. You know, nobody is kind of locking everybody in a room going, okay, what do we want to do with this and what should we be doing on on both the, the home building side but also looking at you know higher ed enrollments you know have we gone overboard with this and that kind of thing i think that needs to happen i'm not sure why it hasn't i know that you know politicians have fears that the solutions will be unpopular either because they mean density or they mean you know, moving out urban growth boundaries or or worst case scenario, we do neither of those things and somehow manage to bring down home prices and existing homeowners lose their mind. Um, you know, I think that's the kind of thing that keeps politicians up at night. So I think it's 
it's, it's kind of this thing where like they know they need to solve it they kind of know they need to work together but there's some there's some fear around what those solutions might look like are they going to be politically popular I do think there are some win-win solutions that we can find that can can make people happy. Example I like to use is if we can build more housing for seniors in the neighborhoods they want to be in, existing homeowners uh, that they want to be in, I think that's a win-win solution because you help existing uh, homeowners who want to downsize, downsize and free up the existing family homes for the next generation. So I think there are win-win solutions out there, but I think governments are naturally afraid that the policy solutions are politically going to pick winners and losers. And at the end of the day, uh, homeowners are more likely to vote. There's more of them and they're, they're, they're wealthier. They're more likely to make political donations. So I think there's, you know, although the polling data says one thing, I think there's, there's, there's fears on the other side. I was just thinking, I mean, to an extent, both the previous Ontario Liberal government and, and the current one, it kind of, kind of suck and blow at the same time in that everything that's come out legislative, legislatively, if I could say that word, over the last 20 years or so has been basically saying we don't actually really want municipalities making big decisions about development because you're just going to mess it up and get in the way of development. So we're going to take those powers away and the, the liberal thing was the places to grow at so basically in your your urban growth centers we're going to actually take most of that power away from you but at the same time we're not going to actually take it away from you you're still going to go through the process of doing your votes and doing your consultations and we'll get all your staff to do all their work and do all the paperwork and then we'll appeal it <laughs> and we'll spend another two years or three years or four years um deciding what to do with that appeal and um I kind of feel, I mean, having you know, once foolishly tried to get myself into the line of work where I would have been making those decisions, I kind of feel like if I got that job now, I'd be like, just take it away. You know, if you really want to take the power away, just take it away. Because then at least then I'm not getting the blame for some building that everybody hates, because even though I voted against it or already, you know, it, it's, it's such a sort of legislative mess. Like you say, four levels of government all tripping over each other. Um, and the public is completely confused uh, as to what's going on and where to sort of uh, put the blame for it all. Do you think they should just say, you know what, these, I mean, if you're going to have the OLT basically making the final decision on, on a huge proportion of major developments, why not just make, let the OLT make the decision from the get-go? Well, exactly. So I, I think we have to pick a lane here. And I almost think it, it almost doesn't matter which lane we pick, but we got we've got to pick one. And and I, I would absolutely agree that we're kind of, you know, on the one uh, and this this goes back with multiple governments going on the one hand. No, no, we want uh, you know, we, we believe in, in in local decision making and, and residents know best what there's for their community, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then whenever they make decisions, they get big footed by the by the province. And I don't think that's that's particularly helpful. Um, you know, and I don't love a lot of what the Ford government's doing, but I think one area where I kind of go, yeah, that, that makes sense, is they're at least trying to with the, the the municipal targets that they've set for 29 municipalities, where they're saying, okay, you know, Ottawa, you've got to build 150,000 homes in 10 years, and Toronto's 285,000, and so on. And then being a little bit more hands-off, going, you figure out how to get there. I actually think there there's merit to that approach. I think they need to go a little bit further and and have targets not just on number of units, but affordability and and other other things like that. And obviously, um, uh, you know, I think they need to reform land tribunal and things like that, so stuff doesn't get caught up on the provincial side for for years. And there's also environmental assessments and and other things like that. But I do think there's merit in the approach where the where the provincial government can look at the big picture, kind of go, okay, this is this is what we need in each community, and then let the communities themselves sort of figure out how to how to get there. Um, but that's still going to be challenging. And then you get into these challenges uh, that the provincial government is trying to think through again with places like Peel Region, where you go, okay, how much is a regional? How much is it done by the regional government versus how much is it done by by Brampton and Mississauga? And that's going to be a, a politically contentious issue that I know they're they're going to be dealing with for the next little while. 
all of which takes takes years each time they go through this. I mean, you know, the 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 uh, regional government in Halton is still working through the things that were set by the Liberal government way before 2018, and they're still well, going to make sure that we're all conform. And, and by the time they things conform, the the thing has changed. Yeah. It's quite ridiculous. I mean, uh, and, and my feeling was, you know, having spoken to some developers over the years, as well as a angry citizens and councillors, the one thing they could all agree on is like, well, spending years at a tribunal is is a complete, you know, everybody wants certainty. And it doesn't, to extent, like you say, it doesn't matter where the certainty comes from as long as everybody knows what the certainty is. Like, okay, I can build this here. No questions, no ifs, no buts. We can build. Let's get on with it. If it's like you're constantly being held out the carrot that, well, we might get a better deal if we appeal it to OLT. In fact, we probably will, given past, you know, whatever. Uh, then, of course, we're, we're in, into that process where everything is basically a process of negotiation between the OLT and the developer and, and the city. Um, I mean, am I, am I blaming too much on, on, the, on the OLT? I mean, I, I know I am slightly obsessed. <laughs> no, I, I, I think it's a fair thing. And I actually, I actually think there's a, a, a larger, it's part of a larger trend of this constant change and constant delay making it hard for municipalities and either even builders and developers to make decisions so uh, you know i use that that example of the different housing supply plans and I, you know i want to sort of re- I actually read this out so um there was a uh, may 2019 there was the the more homes more choice act by the provincial government and then since then, again, we've had three others in the last 13 months. So March 2022, we had the More Homes for Everyone Act. In October 2022, we had the More Homes Built Faster Act, which is a lot of the, the Bill 23 that was mentioned earlier. And then this April, April 2023, we've had the Helping Homebuyers Protecting Tenants, Ontario's Housing Supply Action Plan. And one of the big feedbacks I get from builders and developers who, in general, actually like these changes Um are frustrated by the speed of of rollout uh, just because it creates so much regulatory uncertainty. So for instance, there's talk about the government allowing more building of mid-rises by LRT, subway stations, things like like that, and doing it by right so you don't have to apply. Well, if you you own land right now by one of those stations, you're not going to build today even though the, the rules are more favorable than they were 12 months ago, they might be even more favorable a year or two from now. So there's just so much regulatory risk that I think is one of the things causing um, causing housing starts to be relatively flat, if not declining some, month, some months, is the developers that are saying, yeah, you know, the rules are improving, but they're improving slower, slowly. So why don't I just wait another two or three years, wait for the rules to get even better, and then start developing then. So I think it's a big problem that we have. You know, it's a it's a problem with the uh, land tribunal, but it's a problem other areas as well, where we're just so slow about things. You know, change is incremental, and I get what the province is trying to do of you know not scare anyone. You know, make some small changes, see how they work, course correct, and go further. But I think at some point, like if we really want to have big transformative supply increases i think the government's going to have to make some big changes and then say that's it for like this is the last one as long as we're in office we're not going to touch this thing for another five years so these are the rules build or don't build uh because right now there's so many people on the sidelines and frankly so much of the activity is taken up by land speculation because if you can forecast what the rules are going to be two years from now you can determine which pieces of land are more valuable or less valuable. So the brightest minds right now in Ontario in the, in the housing area aren't focusing their attention on developing or building. They're focusing their attention on land speculation. And I don't think that's helpful for anyone. Well, well I, 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 I was, I was just going to say, say uh, prior to the last provincial election, we had the, the housing report come out from the, uh, the provincial government that, that it was a, a whole, we, we talked about it, it was a slew of, recommendations including middle density um, um, greater infill etc uh, to promote housing and then the provincial government kind of only took a, a, I forget what one or two items and people said, well why don't just take the whole whole report yeah. and say here's the new housing act or more housing act like just put it all into play and that way 
we know what's what's going on. It was this kind of middle, like they they cherry pick. And then I remember Minister Clark saying, "Oh no, war's coming." I said, "Well, okay, but why not? If you're just going to implement this over time, why not just do it all at once and let us go with it?" Yeah, exactly. And and you know, I've heard that from Minister Clark saying, "Well, you know, the municipalities aren't there yet. We want to work with them, et cetera, et cetera." And, you know, at some level, I, I, I do understand that. But I think at some point, you know, if this is already a done decision, then, then then just make it. And, you know, that housing task force had 55 recommendations. And you can basically split them a third, a third, a third. Essentially, a third of the ones that the government has mostly or almost entirely taken. A third where they've kind of moved in that direction, dipped their toe in the water and, you know, haven't haven't done the full recommendation, but have kind of moved in that direction. And and a third, which to date, they've essentially ignored. Um, And I think I think that's a problem. And and that's, uh, you know, that's a lot of areas about, you know, building triplexes uh, by right. Um, You know, the British Columbia government is now allowing quadplexes or four units by right uh, in in parts of the province. Um, You know, we could be doing that in Ontario. That could be really transformative. We could be allowing, again, more mid-rise by uh, subways and LRT stops. Uh, For example, New Zealand allows for up to six stories within one kilometer in any direction of a major transit stop. Uh, we could do things things like that, and that would be within the spirit of what the housing uh, supply task force. I can never remember the name of all these. There's so many, but <laughs> what what the Ford task force basically recommended in in February of 2022, um, we haven't done it, and I th- I think it's a I think it's a problem. It's you know again other than some of the green belt changes and maybe some of the DC changes. This government has been surprisingly timid. You know, they, they, they sort of they talk really tough and they do some, again, things like Greenbelt that are very contentious. So they seem like they're making these big transformative changes. But a lot of this is is really small ball and it's not it's not moving the needle. And particularly, it's causing everybody to kind of just just wait and see and, and see how far they end up taking this. And it seems to be that that, that kind of the missing middle argument the whole the whole kind of opening up that that uh, it's very difficult to build um we've been encouraging developers to develop downtowns as we, we should do um uh, but it's, that's one of the most difficult areas to build because of your while well, you're running into people who already live there and because you know there's all kinds of complexities there and the one area that was just off limits until now was was the single family home neighborhoods where you know the OLT was not going to side with a developer who came in and said we want to build a uh, triplex or, or whatever. Um, and so that there's huge potential for 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 that kind of gentle density uh, uh, piece. I mean, there have been changes there, I, I believe, from, from the from the province, but. Um, I guess it, my impression was that the, the changes that they were actually making were more things like, you know, uh, reducing protections on heritage houses and things like that, which, which affect like a tiny, tiny percentage of, of total properties. Um, is that a fair kind of take on, on what they've done? Yeah, absolutely. And I think furthermore, uh, the recent changes, again, there's been four housing supply build. The, the the recent changes have been more around allowing sprawl, basically. So uh, again, I can never remember the names of these acts, but the, the April 2023 one, the Helping Home Buyers Protecting Tenants Ontario Housing Supply Action Plan, just love these names, uh, contains things that like uh, now uh, municipal governments don't need provincial approvals to extend their urban growth boundaries, which basically is going to allow for you know, we, we think of spot rezoning, but we can kind of think of it as spot urban growth boundaries where a developer could buy a piece of land just outside of the growth boundary and then go to a municipality and say, hey, I've got some cool idea. Can you do this? And say, OK, yeah, we we will, you know, we, we, we will redraw this line, you know, 500 meters uh, south on this corner. So, you know, that's going to cause things like instead of urban growth boundaries, you know, we've had these battles in cities all over the place. Instead of these battles happening every five to 10 years, we could have them ever happening every five to 10 weeks or months um, with, uh, you know, kind of one off changes to, to allow for more sprawl. Uh, you know, changes to, you know, being able to build uh, multiple housing 
multiple houses, including multiple single detached houses on the same, uh, the same piece of rural property. So like if you have a farm property, you can build now build multiple homes. So we've seen a number of, of changes in the, uh, in the last six weeks that have been more focused towards solutions that, that, that build out rather than up and particularly ones that build up in a sort of gentle way, which is ideally is what a lot of us would, would like to legalize, but it's been it's been a slow uh, slog. It's like they they almost they've lost. I mean, the arguments coming out of the uh, PCs um, PC government up until the last provincial election, where it could have been written by 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 the Liberals. In all fairness, um, you know, it was all about you know we've got to we've got to avoid sprawl. We've got to um, we've got to intensify in our downtowns. All the stuff. I remember uh, the local you know the MPPs around here coming out with exactly those arguments. And it's like they lost faith in the whole shooting match, coincidentally, immediately after the last election. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, no, I, I think that's a, that's a fair comparison then. Uh, particularly, you know, you had the version 2.0 and 3.0 in, in October yeah. of the Housing Supply Act. And some of the stuff was, was, was really pro-density, like, um, you know, focusing housing on 29 large and fast growing municipalities in general um, is, is quite a pro density thing where we're saying, OK, no, we're not going to sprawl and all these little towns. We're not going to, you know, keep building out in Thorold, uh, out in the Niagara region like we, we have been recently that we're going to try and build within the city limits of Lin- London and Windsor rather than building in, in Lucan and Amher- or Amherstburg. So it was outside of the green belt changes and a couple of other things it was strangely pro density for for you know the what this government is is normally thought of doing but then this version 4.0 of this bill that came out in april is is very kind of uh permissive on essentially building on what's what's currently farmlands and forests and wetlands so yeah, there is this real sort of disconnect where you get some of these housing bills that are very pro-density and other ones that are very pro-sprawl. All of them are more incremental than than transformative. So it's it's hard to, there's a lack of an overall coherent vision of what does, you know, there's a goal of 1.5 million homes, but there's a lack of vision of what that actually looks like and, and where should they go and, you know, levels of affordability and that kind of thing. There's a lot of little piecemeal changes but it's hard to see how they all, all fit together. Uh, I'm seeing that we're coming up on our on our time limit for the episode. Uh, so I wanted to ask you just one final question, Mike. And what are the consequences of us not getting this right? Of us not, that we don't put the pressure on our politicians to really tackle this issue at all levels, federal, provincial, municipal, in a proper way. What are the consequences for uh, Ontarians and Canadians at large? Well, it's it's basically the the trends that we've seen over the last five years continuing. So, what are those trends? So, the first one is obviously increased homelessness. Um, homelessness has gone up, um, particularly uh, particularly in smaller towns and rural areas. We've had so much displacement going on, uh, where um, you know families from the GTA uh, you know, buy homes in smaller communities, which often you know displaces the the existing residents. A lot of uh, a lot of what used to be affordable rental properties, you were seeing rent evictions and people displaced and so on. So increased homelessness uh, is the first one. Second one is just this um, increased sort of lack of affordability. So it's more people, you know, so people aren't necessarily getting homeless, but it's people in their 20s and 30s, you know, living with multiple roommates, living in their parents' basements, you know, not starting families, not having kids. So you get something, you know, you get you get on the sort of the low end of the spectrum, but you also get the kind of the young middle class not being able to, to make a go of it. And then finally, when they don't aren't able to make go of it and they aren't able to have kids in Ontario, it's basically them leaving for other provinces. So, you know, Ontario's lost about 20,000 people to Alberta in the last 12 months. We've lost about 25,000 to Atlantic Canada. So that becomes a challenge where we can't keep our best and brightest anymore. So it's basically, you know, we we, we think a lot about the brain drain we had in the early 1990s of, of doctors and other professionals moving to the United States. 
it's kind of the same thing, except now in, instead of our best and brightest going to, you know, going to Phoenix or Florida, or wherever they're going to Calgary, Edmonton, Halifax, and Moncton. And I think that would be a problem for us as well. So those are the big three things that keep me up at night is just homelessness, uh, young middle-class people feeling like they're never going to be able to get what their parents had and brain drain out of Ontario where we lose our best and our brightest to, to other provinces. All right. Well, on that cheery note, we're going to wrap this, uh, this episode <laughs> up, but thanks very much, Mike, for, uh, taking your time to come on and, uh, enlighten us to, to the problem at hand. And hopefully somebody, uh, who has powers listening to this episode and maybe says, Hey, maybe we should talk to that Mike Moffat guy. He might have some ideas. Well, well absolutely. I'm not a hard guy to find. Uh, you can all see me on Twitter. So if any policymakers at any level of government are, are listening, absolutely feel free to reach out to me. Fantastic. Thanks very much, everyone. Uh, Talk to you later. Bye-bye. That's it for this episode of the 905er. Thank you for listening. As always, you can send us your feedback, thoughts, and concerns, or ideas for future episodes to our email, info at 905er.ca. We'd love to hear from you. You can help us keep the 905er going by financially supporting us through Patreon as well as PayPal. Visit us at 905er.ca and click on the support tab. As well, links are in the show notes for your convenience. Lastly, you can find us on social media. Search for the underscore 905er on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. So long for now. See you next time. show called The Boiling Point with my co-host Dave Vale. Together, we sit down with trailblazing entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and movement makers who are driving meaningful change in our world. The show is all about exploring the lives and perspectives of leaders who are making a difference. Join us for insightful conversations that challenge the status quo, spark new ideas, and inspire you to take action. Find us on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or at BoilingPointPodcast.com.